Hey, good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I am Felicia King. You are with QPC Security, and we got Dan Moyer back again. We're talking about vulnerability management, part two. So today, we are going to hit up on these topics, and uh, who knows where this is going to take us, because we we do enjoy the, the stream of consciousness and mind mapping that we do out of this. First, it's CISO workflows regarding vulnerability management, supply chain risk management, and how you have to start with security on the front side instead of trying to retrofit it. And then we've really got to talk about this whole topic of what do you really have to do in order to patch things properly, because I swear this is like a serious hot button for us because we find that virtually nobody actually does patch management properly. And as part of that, not all workloads are created equal. So, Dan, you're back. I am. I'm here. <laughs> All Caffeinated. Right. So, that's, that's good, because I've been awake since 4 a.m., and uh, I am not necessarily as adequately caffeinated. All right. So uh, this whole CISO workflows regarding vulnerability management is like a whole paradigm that to us is obvious, but we see very few organizations doing this effectively. And because it is at the core of what is today's necessity, and it's just going to become more and more of a mandatory forced down your throat sort of requirement in the future, I would argue that any organization that is not doing CISO-related workflows for vulnerability management in a comprehensive way in about two years, they're probably going to find themselves uninsurable and so far behind the eight ball that they will not be able to dig out in time enough. Forget about how much money you got. There's just not enough human manpower time in the day to actually get an organization squared away when they've got that much technical debt or deferred maintenance or deferred security initiatives. So I think one of the things that is exceptionally important is that every organization does have a CISO. We provide virtual CISO services for our clients. And I am not going to give away my secret sauce here, you know, um, but suffice to say that it involves a significant amount of interaction with the appropriate management and the appropriate internal staff at organizations and mandatory changes to procurement policies so that you can start with security on the front end instead of retrofitting things after the fact. And I was just recently having a conversation with corporate counsel of one of my clients, and we were talking about taking premise workloads and turning them into SaaS workloads, which in that context, in their their specific context, is an exceptionally good idea. However, that comes with certain challenges. And those challenges are that your SaaS vendor themselves, they have vulnerabilities. So if you're going to go sign this contract with the SaaS vendor, what have you asked for and what are they doing for you in terms of your rights and their responsibilities in exchange for you paying for this SaaS service? Well, I find that Almost no software companies do an actual good job or software as a service companies. Almost none of them do a good job of exactly having in their contracts your rights and their obligations. And so it leaves all kinds of issues out there, such as do they have a continuous vulnerability management scanning going on with regards to their SaaS platform? How are they classifying vulnerabilities? How quickly are they going to resolve vulnerabilities? 
How are they communicating these issues to you? Do they use API scanning? How do they adhere to OWASP API standards and best practices? You know, what are they doing for you in terms of supply chain risk management or software bill of materials? Well, these are in many cases requirements that you have as an organization to apply to your SaaS vendors. Well, if your SaaS vendor isn't providing you that detail and you didn't ask for it in your contract before you signed it, well, now what are you going to do? So the thing is, is that if you don't have a CISO in your court fighting on your behalf and you don't have a proactive, highly functional, highly communicative, good, open and honest working relationship with them, you don't have the protections that you need. All right, so let's transition to what do you really have to do in order to patch things properly, Dan? So let me give you a scenario and then you can walk me through it here. Let's just say you got an environment you got a couple Hyper-V hosts, they're Dell PowerEdge servers, you have domain controllers, you have some SQL servers that are super, super, super critical business you know, applications running on, uh, against those SQL servers, maybe not necessarily in concert, but in communicative relationship with those SQL servers. Um, you've got some servers that are, when I say servers, these could be virtual machines, um, you have some workloads that are hosted on virtual machines that are going to cost you $70,000 a day if that thing is down. And then you have a remote site. You had on-site backups, off-site backups. You have hardware of different speeds. You know, one server is like mediocre. One is like really old because you haven't quite done the, you know, lifecycle management yet. So you have to be cognizant about like recovery time objectives. And then we have all kinds of third-party software on these, these workloads. How do you patch this thing? It's a mess. We'll just start with that. Um, we're we're going to preface some of this with, we know we have backups of things and we are aware of <clears throat> what patches are available to what items. So it's not like we're walking into this environment going, there's no patches on anything type of stuff. And in reality, it really doesn't make a difference because even if you walked into an environment that doesn't have any patching on it, methodology is going to be the same because it's how are you keeping the devices available to the things that need to be, so these business line apps, as well as being able to get them to an updated version. Because you're going to have some of these patches that will step over each other or step on each other or require to be put in place, rebooted first, then the other ones applied on top of it. So, right. That's an important piece there. You, you can't, I mean, that's a really, really crucially important piece. So I want to highlight that, you know, if you've got five patches, you can't just rip all five patches at once and then hit a single reboot cycle. In many cases, it's got to be one patch, reboot, one patch, reboot, one patch, reboot, one patch, reboot, you know, right, right. You're not doing that all in one change window. No, and a lot of times you can exacerbate how long things take by kind of shoving patches down said server's throat because you could make a reboot that took maybe 15, 20 minutes to happen. Now it takes an hour because it's sitting there just overworked, overclocked on things, and just everybody's painful. I stare at servers as they're rebooting because guess what i'm going to make sure that they actually come back they're available to the things because uh if we take hyper v or any uh virtual uh host 
host or software in general, yes, you can set a uh, timer on it to say this thing needs to start first and this is next and so on and so on and so on. I have seen too many examples where it's just like one server just decides to not start because it just didn't. So, well, so you're, you're, also bringing attention, up a, well, you're also bringing up another exceptionally important piece that there is a case for automation, but ultimately at the end of the day, there's no point in patching if that workload isn't going to come back up. Correct. Right. So if somebody says, and we talked about this last time, but I want to reiterate because how crucial this is. If somebody says, hey, I can patch that whole server for 50 bucks a month, um, they're selling you a bridge over the river Kwai. Okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's, that's what they're doing right there. Because what you just articulated is the necessity of, of actually rebooting and verifying and rebooting and verifying and rebooting and verifying. And when you're talking about a physical server, that's a different approach than a virtual server, isn't it? Tell us. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, what the experience we've had and the designs that at least we do is we have so a certain level of availability on critical pieces. So we'll just take domain controllers. We tend to have multiple of them. Uh, or if we've only have the ability to have one, it's been designed in a way that it can reboot whenever to allow patching to just happen because the domain controller is the, the brain of everything for the most case. And being able to patch quickly those types of stuff, reboot it whenever we need to helps facilitate that with the context of it needs to be available when everything else is coming back up because it needs to check in and do its thing. So if as we go through this patching piece, uh, I typically will start with domain controllers being the first thing patched, verified. Now, if we've got multiple, and depending on how critical the environment is, we may be doing a rolling out patch so that these secondary domain controllers or ones that are not on the, the best hardware or whatnot are patched, and then they get to sit for a period of time just so that they can soak. And it's we try to be on the ball with our patches within the first seven days, if not earlier than that, depending on the, the clients and the ability to roll out and facilitate certain actions. But we want to make sure that the patches don't cause other stuff because we we both experienced having to deal with the patch from Microsoft from earlier this year that decided yeah. it's going to constantly just reboot the DC over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. With no rhyme or reason or anything. Microsoft yep. didn't even pull it until I don't even remember if they eventually even pulled it. I think they just replayed, they just pushed out a, a fix to the patch, I think is what they ended up doing. But you had to go in and you had to uninstall a KB. Well, it was rebooting so quickly that if you didn't have stuff set yeah. up with a PowerShell script and all the other stuff for it, it ain't what happening. Like right. you're not going through the GUI. So right. part of that patching methodology you're going through is you're going into patching, what are all your backup plans and your backstops that come into that as you're coming in going, I'm going to patch this, but do I have the tools and everything else in place that if I need to uninstall a patch, they're there and available. When we set up our servers, we always have command prompt. We have PowerShell already like queued up on those pieces when we log in. They may not have like this, then they have the availability of 
pre-planned scripts that we can adjust as we do stuff, but they're all the tools are available. You don't want to be sitting there trying to scramble installing PowerShell while the thing reboots on you. Like these are examples of like, what are your backstops to putting in patches? And we're still talking at a, a server that's fairly resilient and easily updates and if designed correctly can reboot whenever, but you're still right. running all those plans in place because you can use it in other places. So, so one of the things that you brought up was the uh, importance of roles on servers, meaning you don't take your domain controller and put SQL on it or exchange or other CRUD. You know, if, if part of your security philosophy, if part of your ability to have resiliency in the environment is the ability to reboot that thing whenever you need because you have redundancy and resiliency and because it's a single role server, it gives you that agility to be able to resolve and just prevent issues this is why workload design is actually the name of the game and not, oh, I don't want to have another virtual machine. No, no, no. Whatever you think that cost is of that additional virtual machine, that is nothing compared to the problems that you can't solve because you tried to shove a bunch of stuff together in workloads that didn't meet. They just were, they were mismatched workloads. Mm -hmm. um, even from that perspective, I don't even want to take an application and host it on a multi-purpose, uh, multi-database SQL server. If you've got a SQL server, just leave it alone. Let it be SQL server. Just let it do that. Don't be putting monkey shine applications on that thing and hosting them off of there, especially if they're different apps. I mean, it's one thing to say it's a it's a one to one. I got this one app and the only database that's going to sit on that SQL server is just for that. OK, fine. Now you have your when you're doing the patching for that third party app, right, whatever that app is. Now, the stuff that you're doing to that server, it's in that same workload paradigm. So so patch management is all of the other apps that you've got. You know, it's your video management system. It's your surveillance system. It's, it's the patches for the firmware, for the cameras, for the door controllers, for the desk phones, for the phone system, for the switches, the NAS. I mean, I could go on and on. You know, it's all the, you know, it's great planes, right? It's all of your third-party apps. And the thing is, is when, when a business sits down and actually looks at most of the contracts that they have for patch management, None of that stuff is included. They're not patching things like Active Directory, you know, GPO Central Store, which we patch. Um, we patch things like LAPS. I mean, there's just an oodle of things that we patch that nobody else seems to be touching at all. And, and so these buyers of these patch management server services that are saying, well, we're going to do it for, your, for 50 bucks a month per, per server. Well, there is no consistency between what does it cost to patch this well-designed domain controller versus you got this third-party application server that if that thing borks, you know, you're down $70,000 a day and that thing needs to be hand-patched with baby kid gloves, with lots and lots of recovery capabilities at only a very specific set of time and establish time because of the severity of that workload and the importance of that workload and because it's something like SQL Server and it has other things on it as well. 
So, I mean, there's just no way nobody could say, oh, we're going to do comprehensive patch management for you for 50 bucks a month per server. I mean, it's just, it's a hallucinogenic thing. Um, we were also talking about physical servers, right? You were talking yep. about how you watch, <clears throat> you watch that virtual machine reboot to make sure it comes back up. Now we're efficient about it, right? We're doing many servers at one time and, but yet not biting off, you know, more than what can be chewed. Right. We also find it exceedingly relevant and, and necessary to watch the physical servers as they reboot as well. Yep. And that can only be something that is possible when you've got the right hardware. Right. So what uh, Felicia was talking about is with the Dell servers, we use their virtual council, which comes with the iDRAC uh, piece. It is so efficient to be able to log into, let's say your other host or another device that's on the network, connect into that iDRAC using that virtual console. So when you're rebooting the host, you see it actually applying patches and you see if it has any issues because it could be Microsoft gets to a certain point and then you watch it uninstall that app or uninstall that patch because it's just like something happened. Well, <clears throat> Part of that comes into your patch management piece of like, are you, do you have a way to confirm patches are being applied? And if so, which ones didn't to what? It's not a click and set it and forget it type thing. It's just like, how are you auditing those types of things after it happens? Because um, Microsoft's notorious for tripping over itself and not installing everything you need. Um, speaking with about the the host piece, and this is the, one of the pieces I've learned most effectively from Felicia here with QPC is how, how do you reboot your hosts and how do you apply patches? Well, with Hyper-V, we've done, or she's done, and I've done a lot of steps with it, is you're bringing all of your VMs down and you're rebooting your host as a prerequisite for patching because it, it gives you a clean slate to start your patches and then you're using your patching methodology to push specific patches down to it. You're not using the Windows uh, update tool to push stuff down. You're using some, uh, we use our, our patching piece to push specific ones because not everything is needed for hosts and other pieces we have identified that this will cause issue or it's a multi-patch or it's a multi-patch, multi-reboot process Let's just take it one step at a time, pull it down, apply patches, make sure everything's happy coming up, go through that whole process again. While we're connected to iDRAC, watch that thing reboot, apply patches, come back up, make sure everybody's hunky-dory, all the VMs are checking in properly, we're making sure everything's available. We may go through that process two, three times. It depends on how many patches are available, what things got pushed out. Um, as as well as what's our, our cycling for it. Are we going to use this secondary host that's running some secondary processes as our test bed part of it and be like, okay, you're going to soak for seven days longer, depending on what it is, and see, okay, everything seems to be fine. Now we're going to start looking at more of the critical workloads. You know, there, there was a time when... Uh... I had a server that wouldn't come back up because somebody had put a box on the keyboard. And if I wouldn't have had iDRAC access to it, I wouldn't have known what was going on. And I had to go and call the people. They're like, our server is down. And I went and I looked at it. 
And so, you know, basically is telling me somebody had pressed a button. I'm like, what do you mean somebody's pressing the button? <laughs> and I said to him, come on, guys, you got a key, you got a box on the keyboard over there, knock that off. And so if you don't have that hardware level remote control, it's just silly. It's just, it's just so, so, so silly. Um, as you were telling the story about, you know, Hyper-V, clean boot, bringing them down, giving them all nice, clean reboot so that that operating system on the, the host is going to actually, the operating system and other things are going to actually patch cleanly. That's absolutely crucial. And, you know, somebody else might say, well, well, why don't you just use VMware? Well, VMware's got to be patched too, you know, or well, why don't you just use scale computing? Well, that's got to be patched too, okay? Yeah, there's no magic, no magic bullet to a hypervisor. It's you pick, you pick your vendor of choice because of meeting certain obligations, everything, and that you maintain it. Everything has got patches. If you've got a hypervisor that's not giving you patches, you shouldn't be using them. Yeah. Like it's, there's no product improvement. There's no security management from that vendor providing them down to you. All of them have their processes and maintaining and applying patches. VMware's had a lot more in the news of how they do things and past experiences with working with organizations that have VMware. VMware was an install it and forget it type thing. Nobody patched it because nobody fully understood it to completely bring it down to be able to patch it in a meaningful way without pressing the button and covering their eyes going, I think it'll come back up. Well, so, and it, you know, that is a, an exceptionally important point when IT is not confident that a process is going to work, then they don't want to touch it. I mean, I can't tell you how much like network mess I have seen over the years because somebody goes and buys some Cisco stuff that they don't know enough about. They're not brand experts in and they don't have active GTAC contracts on it. So then it turns out to be, oh, this was the thing that the consultant installed. And now because nobody had maintained a budget to have the consultant maintain it for them, this now becomes the vulnerable, unpatched, don't you dare touch it thing in the environment. And they're just, you know, just petrified to, to touch it at all. Well, we can't possibly change anything in that. Because there's no, you. I mean, where's your BCDR plan for it? Well, there mm -hmm. isn't one, right? How are you doing vulnerability management on that? Well, you're not. Well, then why do you have it, right? This is why it's so absolutely exceptionally mandatory to have procurement policy. Your procurement policy is going to drive what and how you can do effective vulnerability management for. Let's go back to the Dell PowerEdge thing. I mean, on the the power edges that we manage, we're doing power supply updates. There's all the iDRAC updates. It's Dell server update. It's OMSA. It's firmware. It's drivers. You know, I mean, there's just all this stuff is getting patched, you know, BIOS, et cetera. And the thing that I hear from a lot of uh, Dell engineers that I've talked to over the years is that they've flat out told me that most of the consultants that they interact with have no idea how to do that stuff. So at least some of the consultants are smart enough to get Dell on a remote session and have Dell patch it. 
Now uh, I, 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 I got a good story for that. So in I'm not, you life, know, I'm not personally comfortable with just allowing somebody else to patch a server that I have the responsibility for the uptime for, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. So in a past life, I was working with uh, an engineer and they were going on site to replace some drives for an HP server because they were still covered under warranty. The tech, the person comes out, swaps out the drives or whatever, and I noticed like, oh, the firmware on the ILO is behind. And just did the update for it. And the engineer's like, oh, that's great. Cause da 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 da. We're gonna just have him do the ILO. And I'm like, I started thinking about it. And I'm like, if that ILO borks, he's not responsible for it. We are. Because I would same engineer working for the same MSP. And it's just like, what are we gonna do with that server going sideways? That is hosting all of their business apps as well as all of their data. And it's like, okay, we've got backups, but that's great. What are you going to back? What are you going to restore it to? You got nothing. So, and how long does that take? Is it going to be able to be viable? Does it like, and then you have all of these factors of what a backup is. And it's just like, is it reasonable to use backup in that manner for the, the oh crap moment? Um, in that regards, and that's kind of well, leads us into a little bit of like what we do with some of those business line apps and how we bat- patch those and manage those as far as going through that process. So, well, and when people are too petrified to patch the hardware, it doesn't get patched and that accumulates over time in terms of its technical debt and the problems that it is accumulating. And what have you ever sat down and tried to install like 78 patches on Windows Server at one time? Usually and what throw, happens? Usually throws up all over itself. Yes, exactly. It blows up. You get a reboot cycle of death. <laughs> so um, everything is like this. Like what happens when you go from like BIOS version 3.2 to, and you want to go to BIOS version 5.7? What happens? Usually you can't. Usually you can't. You, you got to go. I got to go to this one, to then this one, to then this one, and then this one. And then it's like there might be a jump, but then it might go. Yep, you can jump, but and then it throws up on you. And it's going to take a long period of time. This is not a set. Go. OK, magic done. I'm done in an hour. And the risk, the risk is more because you don't necessarily know what is going to happen because you're not running a vetted tested config. And this is something that I think is astronomically important that nobody else seems to articulate is you need to be running a vetted, tested, supported configuration. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you're running a PowerEdge R730, which is the most popular, you know, the PowerEdge R7 series is the most popular server in the entire world. You know, Dell has got some servers in there running modern operating systems and they've got the iDRAC and they've been doing these updates and they keep, they apply the incremental patches. So if you apply the incremental patches as opposed to this, bonkers strategy of, well, we're going to do it like once a year or once every six months or, you know, 
once every five years or literally I or ran never. into somebody recently who said to me, oh my gosh, no, no, we never, we never apply the power supply updates. And I'm like, really? Because I've had circumstances where servers are a lot more reliable when you apply the, the firmware updates for the power supplies. You know, so they, they get incrementally over time just become more and more and more and more and more divergent from the config that the manufacturer is actually testing. And same thing with Microsoft, right? Microsoft, just, just Microsoft updates, let alone, you know, anything else, right? But Microsoft does not test a scenario that says you're missing 78 patches. Now we're just going to give them all to you. They don't test that. Mm -hmm. They're like, here's your OS. It's patched. Great. Now here's these two incremental patches. That's what they test. Mm -hmm. And even with, and I've seen it before of updating friends' laptops that haven't touched updates or whatever. It's just, it'll only update so far. And then it's usually got to sit a couple of weeks till it figures out that other stuff is available to it. You can't jump right to, let's say you're on 20H1 and go right to uh, 20H2 or 22H2 or whatever the various flavor Microsoft has decided to have. You, you usually can't go straight jump to it. Or if you kind of force feed it to it, it tends to break. And it's just yeah. like, so, and some of those pieces of like the, of the IDRAC updates and the ONSA updates, stuff like that, it's just how many of these people that are in, in installing your servers, even updating them to the latest version before they even installed it. Almost never. It's what well, came in the box and I just slapped a virtualization software on it, slapped some VMs on it, and it goes. Well, I mean, yeah, well, how many times have you encountered a situation where OMSA wasn't even installed or Dell server update wasn't even installed? And then I, I can't, I mean, numerous times I've, I've come into environments that were managed by other people and I go and look at the thing and, you know, there's like an orange light on the server and, you know, that server has been barfing about some sort of a failed component for ages and ages. And, you know, nobody's ever done a BIOS update on it in the last five years. Nobody knew that there were errors on it because they never installed OMSA. You know, it's like, oh, we got server monitoring. It's like, what, what planet are you from that you think without any sort of an interface there, the operating system, the monitoring software that's looking at what's going on in, you know, Windows Event Log is going to somehow have visibility into the hardware. That's just lunacy. Yeah, and it's even even if you get a plug-in for stuff, it, it tends to only be a portion of what it is, and even it, it's it's usually never good enough to have any sort of hardware level monitoring on stuff. Because even if it's just using like uh, SNMP traps or anything like that, it's only going to be like, are you up or are you down? Really, uh, it's not going to be like your BIOS is out of date or anything of that nature. Because you can have errors on hard drives but they're not in a failed state, but they're going to be, which would you rather know about stuff that is working towards failure so you can replace them in a meaningful manner or find out at 2 a.m. on a Saturday on a holiday weekend that your server just went sideways because the drive failed? Well, so to that end, uh, a lot of people in this area were getting noblest servers in the past and noblest PCs. Okay. You know, this is basically like a generic white box system and there's no, 
there's no piece of software that had that level of sophistication that ran on a noblest machine that you could have ever even installed, you know, so here's the, you know, IT service provider going and effectively, in my opinion, misleading and misrepresenting to the client what the situation was where they're saying, oh, we're going to, you're going to save money. You can get this noblest thing. You don't have to get a Dell Power Edge when they're not disclosing the actual fact that, well, actually, by getting this noblest thing, we're not going to have any visibility into what's failing at the hardware level on a remote basis, um, or even, frankly, at a local basis, because you don't have that kind of visibility either. I mean, who says it's got orange LED lights on it? And that's a pretty big blazing problem, like drive has failed before that ever even gets reported. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like, I've, what's the I've, real total cost of ownership here? Yeah, and I've dealt with the engineering firms that somebody built essentially high-end gaming PCs to run their 3D pieces. And it's just like, okay, at that point, who's responsible for the BIOS updates? Now you have to add a third-party software to even try to do it. And is it going to interact with other stuff that's on it? Nobody knows because the motherboard's made by somebody else and the graphics card's made by somebody. And it's just like, there's no cohesion in there for getting an update that won't break something else. Whereas the Dell, you can, like on the PCs, you can at least set it to automatically update on its own. It's going to reboot. It's going to apply. Dell oh, servers, that, that's, a, yeah. that, that's a fascinating, I mean, that's an absolutely excruciatingly important piece with regards to vulnerability management. You know, when you're looking at your workstations, a crucial piece to vulnerability management is BIOS, drivers, firmware. Well, are we going to do this by hand? Do you have to script it? Well, that's going to suck. Well, why not just buy the right stuff to begin with that has the automation engine built into it? And when you deploy it, you are configuring it to do it. So, you know, when somebody says to me, oh, well, that Dell computer is a little bit, you know, more expensive than I want to spend. It's like, well, compared to what? You know, really? Seriously, compared to what? Because these other things you're looking at, they do not enable you whatsoever to do vulnerability management. And if you have to pay a human being to babysit that stuff manually, that's way more expensive than what you think you're going to pay for that Dell. And then, you know, what else is more expensive is just not doing it because not addressing a vulnerability and not engaging in active proactive vulnerability management is not a defensible strategy. And that, you know, (laughs) defensibility is the key. I mean, granted, if you're doing a good job, you're probably not going to get breached. But in terms of your liability management, if you're not even doing what's a defensible strategy, that's just unacceptable. So many things. things. I know. I feel like we've we've beat this up pretty good, but I want to focus. I want to wrap up with one little topic here, which is, all workloads are not created equal. Right. And this hey. kind of goes back, goes back to what we were talking about before of now we're patching business line apps and how are you dealing with those and patching those? So some of the well, examples we have is SQL servers or just a, an app that runs on a server with its own magicalness and quirks that go along with it that needs high uptime because it costs the business thousands of dollars per hour to be down. 
Right. So, so when somebody quotes you, hey, we're going to patch your server for 50 bucks a month. Well, you have to look really, really, really carefully about what's in that because virtually nothing is in that. Virtually nothing. Uh, I saw one in the last six months that said, uh, yeah, we're going to patch you know, Windows, and then air quote, some third-party apps. Didn't even say what they were going to patch. Didn't say anything about business line apps. So now, you know, the, the problem that I have with that is, as far as I'm concerned, is gross malfeasance because it is giving the, the client the perception that they're getting patch management. Notice I'm not using the term vulnerability management, right? Because that's like an operational maturity far exceeding what these other clowns are doing, okay? But we're talking about patch management. Oh, we're going to patch Windows and then we're going to do some third-party patching, but they don't even say what they're going to do. And it's probably like five things, okay? <laughs> I think our catalog is over 3,000 items that we're patching. Right. And, and there is no automation for these custom business line apps. There just isn't. So, okay, what's the posture then? do nothing is do nothing the approach we're going to take because that's not vulnerability management and yet every single cybersecurity insurance application i look at it says you are required to do vulnerability management so when these clients engage in contracts with these clowns who are grossly misrepresenting this patch management and i'm air quoting when i'm doing that <laughs> You know, like they're leading them to believe that they're getting an acceptable service and there is nothing defensible or acceptable about what they're doing whatsoever. So I don't know. What's your final comments on that? You can't keep your head in the sand about things. Because it's. If it's that critical to your business of that not going down. And you don't patch it or understand how to properly patch it or have some level of re resiliency built into it is it really that important to your business like you don't you don't have a house and you're like well the door doesn't completely shut but i can bungee cord it shut like it's good enough like really come winter time at least in our area not not necessarily good enough it's going to cost you more in your heating bill because guess what you got to snow drift in your front door like well bungee like, cords are not stopping big bad guys either uh, right or random animals i got lots of squirrels by me they're gonna go they're gonna find a nice warm place and that's gonna be my house so at least it's not a honey badger <laughs> well right right but it's how do you understand those, those patching pieces because some of your business line apps depending on what they are they may not re release patches specific to their software on a regular basis or they do and they may not well document how to apply those patches in those pieces so it's on who is supporting your environment to have done some of the legwork or pieces and parts where the vendor has huge gaps in their documentation we've both experienced where vendors are like oh yeah this is how you do stuff and you read the document you're like that's not even remotely how this works. Like these are screenshots from like a version, like 10 versions ago. And you're saying this is current version or 
hey, install this latest update stuff. Well, it tries to install .NET Framework 2.0 with it. And it's like you, you start interacting with it and you find out 2.0 is not even required. It runs on the latest version, but they're just super lazy at never fixing their updater. Yep. And it's just like, well, okay, the vendor's not competent enough to provide you those pieces for installation. So whoever's managing it needs to have done the legwork and documenting of here's how you do it. Here's the proper software bill of it. materials. Right. We we've gone through what's included in all of its requirements. Plus we know how to install it in a most efficient manner because we've gone through the pain of doing it a few times where nobody knew how to do it. So we had to figure it out. And now that those pieces become easier to manage, we have expectations. Hey, there's a software update. Okay. We're going to need a week's worth of outage windows to get you to where it needs to be and understand that XYZ is going to be unavailable between these times. Now we can schedule this. Now we can understand where it's the minimum impact to the business. Not, hey, this is an accounting app. Well, we need to do an update. Let's pick the end of the month. No, like pick the worst possible pace. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we need to do it on a weekend. What does that look like? What do we have staffing for? Is who's maintaining it have oh. the staffing to be able to run it on the weekend? Those oh. types of stuff, because those yeah. can cost extra time. And like, there's a you lot know, of factors that come with that. But let, let's drill down on that one, because that one, that one is a real big resonator right there. So the majority of the time, the software vendors will charge double or triple time for anything after 5 p.m. or on a weekend. And, and that certainly isn't getting done for 50 bucks a month. <laughs> Usually it doesn't even have two digits. Usually it's three digits at least. Okay, so- Per right. hour. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's absolutely three digits. Yeah, oh yeah. So this now brings up a whole nother thing, this concept of like, well, you know, why don't I, why, why do I need to have my IT service provider involved in this, in this anyways? Like why, why can't I just got, you know, the software company and they'll remote into the server and they'll do the thing. Or, you know what, if you've hired a clown as your IT service provider, then that is actually what their staff does is they allow the software vendor to get right on that server. And again, do whatever, and I'm air quoting again, because that is what I have seen for pretty much the last 25 years of my life is software vendors who want to just do whatever. And they get pretty grumpy with me when I say to them, no, no, that's not how we do it here. And they're like, well, what's the problem? And I'm like, well, are you the one who's responsible for the uptime of the server? Mm, no, you're not. Are you the one who's gonna update the master documentation for this server workload? No, you're not. Are you the one who's going to execute the BCDR plan if it goes sideways? No, you're not. Right. Are you responsible for change control on this server? No, you're not. You right. Are you going to be the one providing the day-to-day -day support for this thing after it's implemented? No, you're not. So what makes you think you're qualified to touch it? Get out of here, you know? <laughs> you know, they should be in a position to where they are providing advice and guidance and support to the IT service provider who is actually the only one who should be doing the implement, implementation. But the IT service provider must 
have the the discipline and the security focus like you said start with security on the front side instead of trying to retrofit it i can't tell you how many times i've been on a session with some software vendor who said oh here's a piece of code just run that and i look at it and i'm like uh i don't really like what that says that it's going to do i'm not comfortable just like you know blindly executing that i said you know, like, why don't you just let me do it the way that I know that is in accordance with our vetted and tested procedures? It'll take five minutes more and you might just have to have a little patience, but then we're fine. And oh, lo and behold, it works out, you know, just fine. And uh, it's just the, the problem I find is that the vast majority of IT service providers do not have these kinds of protocols and processes in place that are quality control and total cost of ownership driven. Instead, they're all about how quickly can I get this done? I want to close this ticket. And, you know, the software company is just going to do it for us. And, you know, I can watch YouTube while the software vendor is doing the thing. And, you know, you know right. this kind of silliness. Well, and that that comes to the, the culture of those organizations that the third party vendor support is for because most of them are driven on ticket metrics. So first call Ooh, closures. It's Titrix. It's right, ticket tit metrics. <laughs> right. Titrix. Say new words. I'm good with that. Uh, <laughs> most of them are wanting to open close initial tickets right away. First call closure is a, a very much a ticket driver and KPI in some places. It's not how did we best meet the needs of the client and fix exactly what they needed to? Because a lot of that comes down to, well, if I'm having to do certain actions where I have to actually work with another person to get on here, probably means our document documentation is crap. Because I've worked with an, I've worked with a lot of vendors where it's I never need to call them. Correct. Because their documentation is spot on. The only times I've had to is either. That function doesn't exist, feature request, or something is actually missing from the documentation. Thanks for finding it. We're going to correct it. Here's the information for the detail. And then you move on. Vendors that have poor documentation, well, let me get on and poke around. And I sort of think I know what I'm going to do. Oh, wait, I need to get somebody else on here who knows it a little bit more. And it's just like, we are wasting each other's time, the client's money, because we're here responsible for what's going on, but you're the vendor who's supposed to give us the information because your documentation is junk. And it's just this constant back and forth, back and forth. And I know I've used your documentation, Felicia, on the third-party vendor we're kind of hinting at that has been, I've just needed to go to that and I do my function and I, I'm done. I don't need to interact with a third party, but that's taken time, effort, and pain on your part to build it and find those problems to be able to do that. And now the client is being able to make a request. It gets done in a timely manner. We all move on with our lives. Instead but the, of and that is exactly exemplar right there for why taking the time to do appropriate quality documentation, pumping the brakes on an aggressive vendor and managing them and saying, hey, 
I am required to do change management documentation as we do this. We will not be blowing through here at, you know, a thousand miles an hour is that that is your one and only opportunity to get that documentation right. And if you don't take that time, then then you're really going to have a total cost of ownership problem in the future because that TCO is going to go through the roof because you won't be able to support the thing effectively. You know, uh, on this topic of the uh, the Titrix, that's what I'm calling it now, is the ticket-driven metrics, also known as the Titrix. <laughs> I love that. Um, that is a great new word you came up there. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I think much of that where the people who are you know, they're, they're being measured based upon their ticket-based productivity. There's a huge disconnect between those people and what they are measured for versus someone who should be in charge of, you know, change management, change control, documentation for uh, server workloads and such. Um, and this, in many cases, comes down to what the owners of that IT service provider value, right? Are they sales and marketing people? Are they just, you know, business people who are trying to be profitable and they compete with others, not on quality, but based upon uh, lowness or apparent lowness of the cheapness of their product when they're like, well, you know, we, uh, they are basically saying to their, to their internal staff, well, we bid this project for this amount of money, so you can't go over that. And it's because they don't know how to do the work themselves, then they go and bid something or they have uh, an account manager who doesn't know how to do the work, you know, or a sales engineer who doesn't know how to do the work. These are the people who bid that out and say, well, oh, we're, we're only going to need this amount of, you know, time to do that. And when they just don't know how to appropriately evaluate these things. And then, and at the end of the day, the end result is that, well, we don't have enough time to take care of things properly is part of this flat rate service model and that was improperly scoped. And as a result, well, it just isn't going to get done. You know, it just that that kind of completeness, that kind of quality, it just doesn't get done because it's not a priority. Well, and I would imagine that those organizations that are getting the uh, the race to the bottom pricing model are also not going to tell you, these are the things we haven't touched. These are the things we're not doing unless you as an owner that's getting that support to say, okay, like, let's go over what exactly you're doing. Are you getting some level of report of how, what kind of patches you do? Hey, what about these? Like how educated are you or how educated are you becoming to know what is required to those workloads and those types of things? So it's kind of akin to owning any sort of property, car, those types of stuff. Yes, you might know how to drive a car. Do you know how to change a tire? There are a lot of people who never change a tire in their life, ever. Like, as soon as you learn how to change a tire in the rain when it's freezing, gone through a couple of those experiences. It's not fun, but guess what? I knew how to do it quickly and as fast as I could, but not also lose the wheel as I drove away. But certain types of maintenances, do you know what kind of oil goes in your car? Those types of stuff. At least knowing it, 
Like I used to change my oil all the time in my stuff. I could maintain stuff. Do I do it now? No. I'm lucky enough that I can pay somebody else to do it because time is well-placed somewhere else and more valuable there that I can afford to do that. It's the same thing you have. You're, you're translating that over to someone else to be able to do the support, the care and feeding of that equipment. Are they competent enough to do it? And also competent enough to say, hey, these are the other things that we're not doing or unable to do, either based off that price point, or we don't know what we're doing. Most times, they're never going to tell you. They might tell you like, hey, pay us more money to do stuff because they want more money. Not that they're competent enough to do it, but a lot they're not going to tell you we're not capable of doing it because nobody wants to put egg on their face of like, hey, you were the you were the cheap low bidder and now we need more money and we're going to nickel and dime you all the way up to where you should have been, which would have come back from the scoping piece in the first place to be like, hey, this is what it really costs to do it. We're not the cheapest in town. We're the most competent in being able to do it. We can able to fix you and be able to make this long term be more viable for you in a secure manner where we're not the cheapest. Ah, amen to that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, one final point here is that I think at the point in time that an IT service provider comes forward and says to you that, you know, this is actually what we offer and that this is an acceptable plan that you can choose and that that plan does not provide you the comprehensiveness of what you needed to fulfill your cybersecurity insurance policy, which everybody knows, okay? Like everybody knows what's on the cybersecurity insurance policy requirements. This is not some sort of exotic thing, right? Everybody knows what's on there. So if they came to you with a proposal recommendation that said you could actually buy just this, and that would be an acceptable choice. So if what they proposed to you was not comprehensive enough so that you could actually have cybersecurity insurance, which is a mandatory requirement now to be in business, then they're just committing, I mean, it, it's borderline fraud at that point in time because they're leading you to believe that that choice they presented to you was good enough and was a defensible choice when it isn't. And so that means that by consenting to what they've offered, you just invalidated your cybersecurity insurance policy, um, which invalidates contracts that you have with, you know, vendors and customers and ramifications, ramifications, and additional ramifications. Right. right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, this has been uh, fantastic. I think we have expounded upon vulnerability management yet again. And uh, not, not any crossover. I don't think very much crossover with what, what we talked about last time. So it's fantastic. Well, yeah. thanks for your time, Dan. You're welcome. <laughs>